If you have your Bible, please turn in it today to Romans chapter 12 as we keep going through. Romans, each of the verses that are there that God has breathed out for us. We're today in Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, and if you don't have uh, your Bible with you, then you can take one of these black Bibles on the end of each pew, and it should be on page 948. Next week you can bring your Bible, but if you don't have one to bring, then just take that one for yourself. It's our gift to you. Um, let's read together Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, coming off of the teaching about spiritual gifts. Here's the next instruction that we have for us as believers in Christ, seeking to live out the truth of our redemption in Jesus in the context of being brothers and sisters in Jesus. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now you could say that all of the instructions in the Bible are instructions for love. Jesus actually said that the sum or the summary of the whole law of Scripture is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Occasionally people hear that and they think, well, that gets me out of having to obey all the rules. All I have to do is feel love in my heart. But no, if Jesus says that that's the summary of all of the rules, then what that means is that if you want to know how to love, then all of the rules are an expanded description of how to love. And so all of the law, all of the do this, don't do that that we see in Scripture is not just there because we should do this and not do that. It's because it's instructions for love. So since the whole law or all the instructions, all the rules in the Bible have to do with love, we really can't cover all of them today. But he really does, in this passage, give us a wide-ranging description of some instructions for what love looks like, especially as we're seeking to love one another as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm just thinking about love in general. You know what separated us from God and condemned us in the first place? The reason we needed the gospel was because of our hatred of God in sin. When we were lost in sin, we might not have expressed it that way. We might not have said that we hated God, but that's where we were. We were hating God, hating one another. But what reconciled us to God, made us saved from our sins, was God's love for us in Christ. So we were condemned in hatred and we were saved in love. In hell, there is no love. It's a world of hate. Obviously, there's suffering in hell physically with the fire and the brimstone that are real, But there's also suffering that's deeper than you can imagine in the hearts of everyone who was there because it's a world of complete hatred with no love whatsoever. But heaven is the opposite. Heaven is a world of pure love. Pure love for all eternity. And so you could say that the aim of this passage that we're looking at is to make the church a little bit more like heaven to give us a little bit more of a purity of love for one another and some practical instructions for what that looks like. What he does here in this chapter, as we've been going all the way through Romans, the first 11 chapters were all about these great truths of the gospel. And for us who are believers, those great truths tell us what God has done for us in Christ and now who we are in Christ. And when he gets to chapter 12, he says, Now I'm giving you instructions, brothers, those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, adopted children of God, here's what you should do. You should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, pure and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. You should seek to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And as he gives practical instructions for what it looks like to to devote ourselves in body and mind to the worship of God, The first place he goes with that is, here's how you should love one another. 
Now, he didn't quite exactly say it that way, but he started out with the instructions, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think with sober judgment and start considering your spiritual gifts and how you can put those spiritual gifts to work, to serve one another in the church and to build up the ministry of Christ and to build up the individuals who are Christ's children that he's gathered together as the church. And so that's what we just came off of as we're coming to these verses is these instructions about spiritual gifts and how those should be put to work for the benefit of the church family. And then he comes straight from that to a direct command about love. Now this is the exact same thing that happens in Romans or excuse me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13. As we were going through the the passage about spiritual gifts, I brought up 1 Corinthians 12 a lot because it talks a lot about spiritual gifts. But when it gets to the end of that chapter, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And in context, he doesn't mean the miraculous gifts. He means that the higher gifts are those that build up the church most directly by delivering in understandable words the message of Christ. And so we should desire the higher gifts like teaching and exhortation those sorts of things, but he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. What's the still more excellent way? It's love. No matter what gifts you have, no matter how much they build up the church, he says, here is what's more excellent, is love. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and all understanding, know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is that love? I, just, I love this, what, what Bartholomew Ashwood said. Bartholomew Ashwood, one of the 17th century English Puritans, He said this, This is the life of heaven and the beginning of that excellent glory which shall never be removed. There is nothing does make thee more like to God, more near and dear to him, and more fit for his use than this grace of love. Let your affections be extended as large as the objects of them. Unto God, his word, his ways, and his people. Love God to obey him. Love his ways to walk in them. Love his people to delight in them, to sympathize with them, to mourn over them in their sufferings, to help them in their necessities, to rejoice with them in their consolations, counting their mercies your own, which is no easy part of your duty. I love the last thing he said, it's not easy. If you think to yourself, boy, love, that's so easy. No, it's not. If you think that love is really easy, then you probably have a worldly view of love, where you just think that love is just this feeling that you get. And when it's there, it's great, and when it's gone, it's gone. But when we start to look at what the Scripture says about love, there's a lot to it. Some parts of it are going to come more naturally to some people than others, but there is a lot And we are going to need to keep on throughout our lives, all the way until we finally meet Christ face to face, we're going to keep on needing to examine our hearts and our lives to see how do I need to work to grow in love, and it is no easy thing. It's not easy, but it is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first thing it says in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So even though it's not easy, even though as we go through these instructions for love that we're probably going to be convicted by several things on this list of instructions, we also have this beautiful truth that if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to grow the fruit of love in you. So praise God for that. It's not easy, but it is a gracious gift that God's going to grow in you. But let's look at these instructions that are here. First of all, he says in verse 9, let love be genuine, or love genuinely, or love unhypocritically would be another way to put that. 
Now, the first question on some of your minds, even as we started talking about love, I just know because of all the, the kind of like the, the teaching that just sort of floats out there that's just there, some percentage of you are wondering up front, well, which Greek word for love is this? Well, I got I to gotta burst your bubble a little bit and tell you it doesn't matter. I know you've heard teachings that say that it deeply matters which Greek word for love is being used, but it really doesn't. If you want to know some more details about that, then you may want to get a book called Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson and read the first chapter, and then you'll get to the second chapter and you'll say, there's no way I can possibly comprehend the rest of this book, and that's okay. But just to say this, that whichever word for love is being used is not really the issue for understanding love. What is the issue for understanding love is the way that love is described and commanded in the Scriptures. And it's laid out for us very clearly. If there ever is a little bit of a nuance in the Greek for the kind of love that he's talking about, it it pretty much comes out in the English. So don't worry about it, all right? Verse 10 is going to be an example of that, where he says, love one another with brotherly affection. That's just easy to put in English, isn't it? You don't have to have these secret Greek things, although Greek is I love Greek. I love it. All right? But I'm just telling you, you can trust your English Bible. You don't have to go to all these hidden secret kinds of teachings where he says love. It means love. And he says, let love be genuine. And if you want to know what love is, let's look at this description of it. Let love be genuine. There's two aspects of what it means for love to be genuine that we can think about. One of those would have to do with genuineness when we examine our own hearts. And the other one has to do with genuineness when we examine the scriptures. Genuineness when we examine our own hearts means that we don't want our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be fake. We don't want our love just to be some sort of an external thing that we put on to fool people into thinking that they're being loved. Now certainly, it's better to to work so that people feel loved than to say, I'm going to be real and just rip people to shreds because that's what I feel in my heart. Don't do that either, okay? Don't do that. But what we need to strive for is a love that is genuine from the heart. I know that you've heard and maybe regrettably you've actually said before, I love them, but I don't have to like them. The, the idea here, when it says let love be genuine, is, okay, well, if you don't like them, work on that. Work for it to be genuine. Not to be made up, but to be actual from the heart. I love and care about this person. This is actually part of what you've committed to as a member of First Baptist Church of Madawan, if you're a member of the church. In our church covenant, it says, we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love. A little bit later, it says that we further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior, which is talking about Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, to secure it without delay. My, my favorite phrase in all of that that we've said that we commit to together as a church is to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling. And that's just basically saying Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Where you don't have actual Christian sympathy in feeling towards your brother or sister in Christ, pray that God would change your heart. Start seeking and praying to actually like them. If there are brothers and sisters in Christ, especially members of your own church that he's put us together in covenant relationship with, that he's put us face to face and called us to love, and and you would look at particular fellow church members and say, I just do not like that person. Work on that. Pray for God to change your heart. Give thanks for them. Look at all of the ways Sit down sometime, all right? Put this, maybe write it down in a place where nobody's going to find what you wrote down, all right? But, But maybe write down that person's name 
And, and, and rather than praying that God would fix all the things that are wrong with them, list out the, the graces of God that you see in them. The grace of their faith in Jesus Christ. The grace of the fact that they have been gifted in a certain way. The grace that they show up. <laughs> and, and, and if you're not relieved to, to have them show up, pray for God's forgiveness about that. So, I mean, it could just go on, but let your love be genuine. Repent where it's not, and pray that God would change your heart to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling. But a second way that our love needs to be genuine, not just when we examine it against our own heart, but also when we examine it against Scripture. So genuine love needs to be love that is according to what the Bible says is love, which is not just about feelings, it's about deed and truth, and it's about the definitions of love that, that the Bible gives us. And the, the most straightforward definition of love that we have in the Bible is 1 John 3.16, where it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior to know love. This passage that we're preaching, or that I'm preaching through here today, Romans 12, is, is mainly written to believers. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you, you need to know that whatever kinds of, of echoes of love that you have felt and, and had in your life, they're only going to be echoes and reflections until you finally come face to face with the true love that has been poured out for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. As he put it in Romans 5, 8, he, he said, in this is love, ah, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to quote another verse, so let me go to Romans 5, 8. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? God wasn't sitting around waiting for you to get better so that he could start loving you. He sacrificially gave himself up for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so come to know Jesus as your Savior. Embrace the love that he has poured out on the cross. That's how you're going to know love, is when you come to repent of your sin and recognize, I had nothing to offer God except my rebellion and hatred. But he came and gave me his love. Embrace it, believe it, receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that he purchased on the cross for sinners just like you. Receive it. And believers, as those of us who know Christ, the call here is to look to the cross and say, that is genuine love. If I want my love to be genuine, then I want my love to look like Jesus' love for me, which is not a, uh, you know, a, a re return gift for some kind of a work done, not some kind of a reward for merit, but a self-sacrificial, no, you know, nothing needed in return kind of a love. And he says, let us lay down our lives for the brothers. He says in 1 John three eighteen, two verses later, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Ah. Uh, where our hearts and our deeds don't have love. Pray that God would forgive you, cleanse you, seek love that is genuine. Now, the most famous description in love, of love in the Bible is from 1 Corinthians 13. I read the first few verses of it earlier about how if you have all these other things and you don't have love, you're nothing. Well, what does love actually look like? You've heard this at weddings before, but this was actually written about the love that a church was to have for each other in their working out of that love as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I heard a pastor a long time ago say, you know what you should do on a regular basis is you should go back to those verses and everywhere that it says love, you should put in your own name and ask how true that is. 
Love, or insert your name here, is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on his own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That's something where we can go and search our hearts and say, is my love genuine today? And where it's not, pray that God would forgive you, and he will. Pray that God would cleanse you of the unrighteousness of love that's not genuine, and he will. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, including the unrighteousness of not being loving or not having genuine love. So praise God. And then with these instructions, and that's kind of like what sets us up for this whole section here, let love be genuine, and he's going to describe a lot of things that go together with that. So number two on your outline on the back of your bulletin is love with hatred of evil and celebration of good. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Love with hatred? Well, we're talking about hatred of evil, and that's what he says. He says it directly. Abhor what is evil, second half of verse 9, and hold fast to what is good. It gets at what we just said from 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. What is this evil that we're to abhor? Well, the book of Romans that we're in has given us two categories. Back in Romans 1, verse 18, it said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about all ten of the commandments. Ungodliness has to do mainly with the first four of the commandments. You know, you, you, you never meet an unbeliever who claims that they obey the ten commandments who is ever talking about the first four. What they're always saying is, no, I'm an honest person. Stuff like that. They're not saying, yes, I love the Lord God and put him first in all that I do. Right? But that's ungodliness. That's horrific before God. Where it says in Romans 1.21, explaining that ungodliness, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Guys, love does not include the affirmation of false beliefs or the affirmation of the rejection of God for some other religion. When people claim in the name of tolerance that you must celebrate other religions, it's not true, and it's not loving. We are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. It doesn't mean to hate those people. It means love those people by not saying that what they believe is true when it's not. Second thing that it says is not just ungodliness of men. This is, I'm relating this to Romans 1.18, the definition of evil. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's what it says about unrighteousness later in that chapter. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. As there's some evil. There's some evil. You may have noticed, though, right up front in that description of unrighteousness were some of the main things that the world is currently demanding of us to affirm if we are to call ourselves loving. Guys, you are going to encounter this if you haven't already. You will encounter it in your own families, probably eventually, with relatives where they will say, if you really love me, if you really love me, then you're going to celebrate who I feel that I am on the inside. In terms of my gender identity and orientation, you are going to celebrate what I want to do in the mutilation of my body. You are going to celebrate what I want to do 
in my burning passion of women with other women and men with other men, they're going to say, if you don't celebrate that, you don't love me. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The Bible says that love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's not love. Now you may say to yourself, but that's going to cost me. That's going to cost me. Yes, it will. That's part of the cost of following Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And, and members of a man's own household will be his enemies. He says this is part of the cost of following Jesus, is that even your own family and relatives may decide that you are the enemy because you uphold righteousness and will not affirm ungodliness and unrighteousness. Follow Jesus. Continue to love those people. Continue to love them deeply. Continue to love them genuinely. But do not think that because you love them that you should start affirming their evil. Love includes abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. James 5.19 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Don't let people stay in their sin and call it love. Snatch them out of the fire. Snatch them out. Also, let's keep going. There's a lot here, isn't there? A lot of instructions. We've got to get to all of them. Verse 10, that we should love with brotherly affection and honor. It says, love one another with brotherly affection or be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. He brings out here, hey, this is a, this is a brotherly, family kind of love that he's emphasizing here. He's pointing out, if God has saved you and adopted you as his child, he's also adopted a bunch of other people too. And you've got brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're to look around and say, hey, we're a family of God here, and we need to love each other like a family of God. It is a saying that this love that we're to have with brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially those of our own church, is to be a love that's even deeper and even more devoted than love for other neighbors. Now, are we to love all our neighbors? Absolutely. That, that man who was talking to Jesus and trying to get out of loving his neighbor, he said, well, who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus tell him? He told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Basically saying, if you're walking along the road and you come across somebody in need, that is your neighbor that you're to love. Absolutely, that's true. But consider this. God has put other neighbors into your life more closely like your own family, and like your church family. And he says, hey, especially love your brothers in Christ. Have a brotherly love. Now, if you grew up with brothers and sisters, I know some of you guys are only children, but if you grew up with brothers and sisters, you didn't get to choose them, did you? And, and they, they don't always do exactly what you'd hoped that they would do. And things are not always hunky-dory between you and your brothers and sisters, but they're still your brothers and sisters, aren't they? You don't get to pick your own family, and you actually don't really get to pick your own church family either. Even if you went church shopping at some point and finally decided, well, I'm going to join this church, well, over time, people come and people go, and God saves people that you'd never expect, and they, they get brought in, and, and you find that you still didn't get to pick your brothers and sisters, did you? And, and he says here, hey, you need to love these people with brotherly love, with brotherly affection. It, it's amazing what God does in this, too. He takes people that would, would just really never be associated with each other out in the world and just puts us together and makes us a family around our, our common bond of Christ. You know, you, you get people who are very young and people who are very old. That's not any of you guys. Um, and you get people who are, uh, uh, you know, of, of this race and this ethnicity and of this cultural background and born in this country and that country and just, this, you know, interested in these things. And, you know, this guy who's, who's all about hunting over here and this guy who's all about Rubik's Cubes over here. And then he just, 
puts us together in this weird mix of people and says, hey, your brothers and sisters in Christ love one another. It, it's beautiful. It's amazing. And, and Jesus actually says that's how the world is going to know that we're his disciples. He said this I, I, in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that beautiful? If you have love for one another. One of the things that this means, by the way, is, is that when you make a commitment to a church, it needs to be a commitment that's deeper than, say, picking what restaurant you're going to go to or deeper than picking what gym you're going to join, right? You go join a gym, why do you do it? Well, it's because the price is right, they've got the right equipment, it's in the right location, it's got the right hours, they've got classes at the right times, or maybe you just kind of know in the back of your head you're never going to go, but it makes you feel better to have a gym membership, right? And then eventually you may say to yourself, well, you know what, that, that gym was great, but now there's another gym that just opened up down the street, and they've got better equipment and better hours and more classes, so I'm going to cancel my membership and join that gym. That's fine. You can do that with a gym. Don't treat the church that way. Don't say, okay, I have made this commitment to this church, and it's fine, but, but there's this other church now. You know what? That's going to keep on happening from now until Jesus comes back. God's going to keep on building his church, which includes the planting of new churches and includes... Churches at, at certain times thriving in some places and declining in other places and, and having big, cool things going on sometimes and not big, cool things going on at other times. And, and, and if you're going to just say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm going to be at the church that has the best, coolest thing going on, or I'm going to be at the church that's most convenient for me, or even get this one, I'm going to be at the church where I'm most fed, that is a dangerous thing to say. Okay? There's a big difference between a church that's not preaching the gospel and a church that's just not quite as awesome as the other one. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Here, here's a way to think of it, though. When you become a member of a church, you are committing to these brothers and sisters. It's not like joining a gym. You're saying to yourself, I need to show these brothers and sisters brotherly affection. And when I see something great going on at another church, I may say, praise God. Praise God. But these are the people I'm committed to. And I'm not just going to be out of here because something cool is happening over there. Love one another with brotherly love as a family of God, not just with a club membership. Here's what we do. We love, verse John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love, his bro love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me say this. I would so much rather someone skip out on their responsibilities as a church member and join some other church where great things are happening. As much as I just said I never want that to happen, I would so much rather that happen than that they be at home, doing nothing, sleeping in, not loving brothers and sisters in Christ at all. Now I know Sometimes people come to a point in life where they got to go into a nursing home. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about getting deployed to the military. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who say, yes, I love Jesus, but I would just rather not be with his people. That is an extremely dangerous position to be in spiritually. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't love your brothers whom you have seen, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen? But he says not just to love one another with brotherly love, but to outdo one another or go ahead of one another in showing honor. 
This is the same verse. We love with brotherly affection and also with honor. He says, don't wait around until you've been honored to take your turn to honor someone else. Don't wait until somebody has pointed out the ways that God's grace is at work in you before you're ready to point out the ways that God's grace is at work in them. As it says in Philippians 2.13, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Guys, where we haven't loved with brotherly affection, where we haven't shown honor, we can repent. God will forgive us. God will cleanse us. God will change our hearts. And we seek to love with that love. Another part of this love, and some of these instructions as we go through here, and especially in verses 11 and 12, they almost seem like random instructions not connected with love, but then when we get to 13, we're going to see about this meeting the needs of the saints, and we're going to see all of this has to do with love. So we'll just keep going and calling this instructions for love. But he says, love with zeal and not with laziness. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. When he says slothful, that means lazy. When he says slothful in zeal, that's not just lazy, but apathetic. Not even caring. Guys, laziness and apathy, they rob your neighbor of love. If you're lazy and apathetic, you're not going to be loving one another fervently. You're not going to be loving one another genuinely. Apathy and laziness rob God of praise. They rob yourself of joy. And you may say to yourself, I don't know how to make myself not apathetic. I just don't care. Repent. Repent. Go to God, tell him that you don't care, and ask him to forgive you for not caring. He will forgive you, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, including apathy and laziness. He can forgive you, he can change you, and he can help you to do what it says. Instead of being lazy and apathetic, it says to be fervent in spirit. Now, spirit here, there's a little footnote in the ESV where essentially you could capitalize the word spirit, that this may be talking about the Holy Spirit, and I, I think that that's what it is. It's saying that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can have a fervency about our serving of the Lord and our serving of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that's, that's what he says in this verse, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Guys, when you serve one another, when you love one another, do you know who you're really serving? Jesus. If you really want to know how do I serve Jesus, don't get off on these mental tangents about, about these, these faraway things that you could do someday in some place when your circumstances change. You want to serve Jesus, the most direct way to do that is to turn and to serve people, and especially to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says that on the day of judgment, that he's going to have everybody ever gathered in front of him to separate the sheep from the goats, and he's going to say to the sheep that they have served him, that they have fed him when he was hungry, that, that they have given him water when he was thirsty, that they have taken him in when he was a stranger, all of these things. And it says that the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And, and, and the king will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Hear what he says there? My brothers. This is not saying that you can neglect those responsibilities for other neighbors. But listen, Jesus says, when you did it for these, my brothers, you did it to me. So don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Be fervent in spirit about serving the Lord by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we are to love also with joy and patience and prayer, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now those three things, again, they don't really sound like instructions for love, but they are. 
They are. And since, since these things are not just listed here by themselves, but in the context of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, let's think of them that way. Rejoicing in hope. What does that mean? Well, the, when we talk about hope, we're talking about knowing what God has said is in front of us for eternity. We're talking about eschatology. We're talking about it's the study of the end times, which sometimes people will put in this, this category in their minds that's, that's totally separate from the rest of the Christian life. They'll say to themselves, well, yeah, I've got my real Christian life, and then at some point I'm going to switch my brain out of real Christian life mode into speculation about the future mode and start trying to figure out all of the mysteries of what exactly is, is this thing and this thing and what's the timeline and all that kind of stuff. And, and we should absolutely be reading the book of Revelation on a regular basis, but reading it with, with this in mind, guys, that the book of Revelation says over and over and over that it is given to us for our encouragement so that we will persevere, so, so that we will be the one who overcomes. That's all the way from the beginning of the book of Revelation to the end of it and saying there is going to be this need to set our hope on eternity. He says in Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, if we know that Jesus is coming back, if we know that Jesus is going to raise the dead, that he is going to judge the living and the dead, that he's going to cast the wicked unbelieving into the lake of fire for all eternity, that he's going to count us who believe as righteous and raise us not to death but to eternal life, that we're going to dwell in his presence in the new Jerusalem forever and ever, singing his praises, being glorified in, in the sense of, of being raised up to this eternal state of blessedness with him before us as our object of worship forever and ever. If we know that that's what's ahead for us, that's going to make us rejoice. And that's going to be something also that affects our love. Guys, if you, if you want to be effective in loving one another, don't get bogged down in despair. Be someone who sets your heart on eternity, has an abiding optimism because you know that the promises of Jesus are true forever and ever, and in your joy that you're able more and more to love and build up your brother in Christ. Rejoice in hope, not just for yourself, not just so you can be happy, although what an incredible benefit that is, but also so that you can effectively love one another. And with that, he says, not just rejoice in hope, but be patient in tribulation. I think really that's part of rejoicing in hope, is saying that as there are the tribulations of this life, as there are the minor pains in a regular day, and as there are the major pains of huge tribulations that come upon the world and come upon us individually, that we can be patient, that we can be waiting and say, this is not going to overcome me. This is not going to shake my faith in Jesus. This is not going to turn my eyes away from the truth of what's ahead of me. We've got to stay on course when people and circumstances try to make you swerve. That's what it's talking about. Where Deuteronomy 5, God said, Be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside from the right, to the right hand or to the left. That's what this is talking about. Be patient in tribulation. Stay the course even though somebody's broadsiding you or some circumstance is broadsiding you. It's described in 1 Peter 5 like this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Guys, love with that patience. I mean, just a very direct thing here. Is there ever anybody who tests your patience? <laughs> Stay steadfast in Christ. 
make a determination that you're going to keep on loving with genuine love, regardless of whether it's the person that you're trying to love that's trying to shake your faith, or other circumstances that would be tribulation. Be patient. And he says also, be constant in prayer. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. He says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And guys, praying is not just for your own personal benefit. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be praying for each other not just when you know something that's wrong in another person's life that you can pray for, but also in a regular basis, just like Paul gave us by example all the time, always opening up these letters to the churches saying, I am praying for you constantly, and here's what I'm praying. Thanking God for your faith and your hope and your love and praying that God would open the eyes of your hearts to know what is the, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. So many things that he gives us. That's always the first thing on our prayer list every week, by the way. Uh, scripture that you can pray for each other even when you don't have a request. But we're to be constant in prayer, not just for our own personal benefit, but as part of our love for one another. And then love with generosity and hospitality, verse 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's a concrete way to love. If somebody needs something, help them. That's uh, pretty obvious. And for some of you, like that's what you've been thinking this whole time. I've been talking about loving people and finding ways to love people. For, for some of you, that's just kind of where your personality and your gift set is, is that you're on the lookout for the needs of others. For others of you, this, it might have taken until we got to verse 13 for you to think of it. For you to think, oh, I, I ought to be on the lookout for where somebody is in physical need to where I can meet that physical need. You know, Jesus actually taught us to pray on a regular basis uh, to, to give us this day our daily bread, right? We, we want him to meet our needs. Well, you know how he's going to answer that prayer for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ? You. you. You are going to be the answer to somebody's prayer to give us today our daily bread where, where they don't have what they need and you can provide that. To contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, are we to contribute to other people's needs if they're not believers in Christ? Of course. But the Bible just constantly tells us to especially prioritize taking care of the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This has to do especially with basic needs like food and clothing and shelter. So if there's a brother or sister in Christ who doesn't have what they need, we're called to contribute to that. 1 John 3.17 says this. We read 3.16 and 3.18 earlier, but I won't tell you what's in between those. Is 3.17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, you could have this as, as in your own private life where you you're just recognize, hey, this is a person in need, and you're just going to meet that need. That's a fantastic way to do it. We also have something set up here as a church called the Deacon Fund that we contribute to together on the first Sunday of every month, or, uh, or if we take the Lord's Supper on a different day, we move it to that day. But, but that's a fund where you may not be aware at all of particular needs that fellow saints have. But, uh, you know, we, we, it comes across the, the radar of the church as an institution that these are needs that need to be met, and you can help contribute to those kinds of things and to uh, ministries in our community that help contribute to that as well. So that's a thing to think about and pray about. How can I contribute in that way toward the deacon fund? Or maybe it's even far away needs. The Apostle Paul was doing this. Even as he was going about his missionary journeys all over the world, establishing churches, preaching the gospel, one of the things that you see consistently in Paul's letters is that he also had an ongoing project as he was doing all this to collect money for the, the Christians in Jerusalem. And, 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 and so the, he was asking these churches, please contribute toward this. It's just amazing to think of that back when he was an unbeliever, he was part of the beginning of the persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. 
He was there holding coats for the people who were stoning Stephen to death. And it was after Stephen was stoned to death that this great persecution arose against the believers in Jerusalem. Many of them had to flee. Those who were there, a lot of them were losing everything that they had because they were being faithful to Christ and facing opposition for that. Well, what was Paul doing? He was going all over the world and asking Christians, please contribute to the needs of these faraway Christians who have nothing because they're faithful in Christ. And we can seek to do that as well. He also says, seek to show hospitality. Now, there were no hotel chains back in the first century. You went somewhere, you had to find a place to stay. And if you were looking for an inn to stay in, that's a difficult thing. Joseph and Mary found that out, right? But even, at, even that, if, even if you found a room in an inn, you never knew what it was going to present. It could be a place that was set up to rob you. It could be a place that was set up to be a house of ill repute, as you might say. And so these Christians who were traveling from place to place, they depended on finding fellow believers in whatever city they came to who would be willing to open up their homes and give them a place to stay and a breakfast to eat the next morning. And the Bible still tells us, seek to show hospitality. Now, you may never have opened up your house for a traveling Christian to stay in, but you can on September 18th and 19th. We have Christians coming in for the Northeast Fire Fellowship who are looking for homes to stay in. And you may say to yourself, that's weird. It's not weird. It's Christian hospitality. To be able to open up your home and say, these believers are people that I get to know and to love. Praise God I get to have them in my house and to serve them. If that's you, let me know. Love to have homes opened up to some of these who are coming in. But also, it's not just about a, a traveling Christian from far away. It's also being willing to say, I, I want to open my home to bless people physically and spiritually. I want to have people over. I want to do what I can to use my house as a blessing for others. Now, if you say to yourself, I couldn't possibly do that in my house because it's so out of order, well, maybe that's a call to get it in order not just so that you have your house in order, but so that you can bless people and love people. It's a great call to do that. There's a, there's a really good book. I, I say it's really good. I haven't read it. I've just heard enough people say it's really good. I trust it is. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. The, the sub, uh, subtitle is practically, or Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. So if you really want to figure out what does this look like to show Christian hospitality? Great resource to go to. But I want to go back as we have been through these instructions, and I just want to go back and tell you this. In 1 John 3.16, which is a verse that we prayed from, we looked at already, and I want to read it to you backwards, the second half first. It says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Yes, we ought to do that. And maybe God has convicted you of a way that you're not doing that, and I have good news that Jesus died for our loveless hearts and loveless lives, and he will forgive us, and he will cleanse us, and he will help us to love as we ought to love. So let's seek that from him. But also, the first part of that verse, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You won't know love until you first come to know the love of Christ poured out on the cross. Trust in him, the lover of our souls. Let's pray. God, thank you for these instructions that you've given us in the Scriptures. God, these are beautiful instructions, and they're in the category of your law, which convicts us of our sin and restrains our evil and shows us the right way that we need to walk in. So I pray that where uh, our own hearts and, and lives haven't matched up to what you've said here about how to love one another, I pray that you'd forgive us. I pray that you'd cleanse us. And I pray that you would give us a love that is genuine. But God, just above all, thank you for showing us your love while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Help us to live in that forgiveness and love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.